Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Diana. Hello, everybody. And I have to say, I'm so excited about the guests we have today, Margaret Stone and Neil Smith. Talk about the world's most impressive power couple. So Neil has a background in sports broadcasting. He was a hockey player. He was a general manager, and he now is in the financial services arena. As the quote says, his exceptionally talented and always witty and beautiful wife, Margaret, we are blessed to have her on the team at O'Connor Professional Group. She also ran her own executive search firm and does a variety of tasks at our company. And we're so excited to welcome them to the podcast. I know we're going to be talking about something very serious today. And in addition to having both illustrious careers, you know, Margaret and Neil, you've been through a journey and, and had an unfortunate um, incident around suicide in your family. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit of history and a little bit of information about your journey? I'll go first. First of all, it's really good to be on the show. And, and it's great to be able to talk about this issue, which is impacting so many people in the United States and, and for that matter, around the world in this uh, demographic of this age group that unfortunately our son was in. Margaret, do you want me to continue or would you like yeah, to come why don't in and you say ex- hello? Well, I'm thrilled to be doing this because it is such an important subject. And Neil being the the hockey man, the broadcaster is far more eloquent on these things than I, but it's a shared journey. And I think because you were here that evening, I think you should really kind of take people through the journey and what we've learned. And then I'll comment when you want me to. Well, to begin with, Arden and Diana, you know, we were, I'll just speak, I'll say the I word, if you don't mind, because some, this is a very personal thing of, of it can't, you can't speak for two people's mindset. You you can only speak for your own. And I was aware that suicide was something that had been creeping into the younger generation for a while. And I was asked about it actually by my son, you know, questioning me, dad, did you ever think about that ever? And of course, I tried to at that time, do what my mother would have done and completely shut it down by saying, never, never. Are you kidding? I would never do that. I would never do that to to your grandmother. I would never even have thought in my mind, which is a parenting answer that I guess was the only answer I could come up with in the spur of the moment. Well, we found out at one point that he was had done some cutting and that was looked into very seriously by us. And we, t- we took that matter very seriously. It, it wasn't extensive. It was only one time. And uh, then what happened was he, unbeknownst to us, he was in his senior year at University of South Carolina Upstate and had met a couple of people who were into drugs. I didn't have any idea that he would ever do drugs because I had threatened him that if he ever did, I would break his jaw. For some reason, he, um, on this one particular weekend, did cocaine. And then the next night, being out with a girl who he was trying to be smitten with, she gave him some ecstasy. And being the size 
man that he was around 245 pounds at six foot six foot one it you know he probably took more than you should take in any case even if you were into using it because he probably thought that you know he's big he can take that so fast forward to the next day again this is unbeknownst to me and now we're on a saturday that had happened on a friday night and i saw him it seemed like a regular day he was concerned to tell me a couple of things from that weren't really that memorable and i went about my day and i came home from uh, the gym that day and at about eight o'clock eight thirty, and my friend who was a him and his wife were here trying to escape hurricane florence they live in myrtle beach was sitting at the table with me in the kitchen table and we were talking and laughing and victor was downstairs watching tv with their dog and he came back up and as soon as he came up when i saw him the first time after returning from the gym i said you've been drinking and he said yeah i guess a little bit i said you're hammered I said, you know, and I, I won't go through the conversation in detail, but I just, I, I basically, again, gave him what for, for, for being like that. I said, we don't drink on our, by ourselves in this family. That's not something we do. And you can do that with your buddies or girls or something, but you don't drink on your own. You've got a problem if you're doing that. He sort of poo-pooed that. And then to fast forward the story again, he, he wanted to go downtown. I wouldn't let him get in his car. I wouldn't let him go anywhere in his car at all. And some of the things that he was saying to me didn't make sense. And so eventually I just, he went upstairs to his bedroom and, you know, thinking, okay, well, he's in, if he's drunk, he's home and he can't drive. So, you know, let him sleep that off. And suddenly I got a text on my, well, I, sh I should say before that, I, I, I heard the shower go on in his room, which was very, very different for him. That wasn't his routine to be showering at nine o'clock at night. So I texted him and said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm going to take a shower. I feel dirty. And I said to my friend Bernie, I said, boy, that, that's strange. I said, he doesn't shower at this time of night. So anyway, only a few minutes later, I got a text that I started to read, and I immediately threw my iPhone to Bernie and ran upstairs. And I said, what do you think? Read this, read this. What do you think? And what it read was, I hereby leave my two Stanley Cup rings to my two nephews. I leave all my other possessions to Alexander, my best friend. And then he went through some other things and I was like, what the F is going on here? So I ran up the stairs and his bedroom door was locked. So I said to Ber Bernie, he said, break it, just break it open. I couldn't break it open. And I got a little pin and unpinned the lock and ran into the bedroom. And the whole time I'm screaming his name, like what is going on? And I unpinned the bathroom door in his bedroom and the shower was running and I pulled the door back and there was blood everywhere and he was convulsing blood out of his mouth. He was sitting and I was, of course, within a second, I was insane and screaming for my friend to call 911 and he was right in the doorway and I was just, I was screaming like he was in another state. That's how loud I was screaming at him to do something while I pounded on his chest, pounded on his back, wiped a towel out of the blood out of his eye and, and wiped his ears and wiped his head and tried to do what parents do. And the EMTs and the sheriff's department and everybody arrived on the scene, I would say within 10 minutes and escorted me out of the room and downstairs. And of course, by now I'm completely lost it. I'm out of my mind, grieving and sobbing and screaming. And EMTs took him away to the hospital. And then I 
followed them to the hospital with the, in the sheriff's car. And four days later, because he was put on a life support, we took him off the life support four days later and he passed and he had donated his organs to, unbeknownst to us, he had donated his or he was an organ donor. So they took out whatever organs they could harvest. And ever since, it's been just a mountain of grief and a Herculean task to go on with our lives. Neil, thank you. Thank you. Margaret, you live this too. What, what is your piece of this journey? You know, I had been up in New Jersey caring for my mother who was on hospice, and I had actually just texted Victor not long before that, and he had shared some goofy dog photo. He's a sweet, sweet kid. He was not an argumentative kid, but he was very needy and impressionable when it came to girls. So when I got the phone call, a text from Bernie saying, I think Victor shot himself. I I, I think I catapulted up and could hear Neil screaming and going through the whole thing and then getting down there. You know, I think Neil will agree the moment that you are faced with it, the and we both said this to each other, the moment that I read that text, it was like someone took a sledgehammer and just shattered my, because I, I knew it only meant one thing, mm-hmm. but everything stopped. And I knew everything I knew prior to that moment was gone. It was over, like it was over. And Neil mentioned how he was in the shower screaming, but he knew that Victor was somehow above him, that he couldn't fix it. And and you're left with this sense of, I can't do anything. And you're a whole time making every bargain you can with God mm-hmm. to take it back, take it back, take it back, take it back, take it back. And it, you know, for any parent or sibling or husband or wife who's gone through it, you know that the moment it happens, your life as you knew it is over and the real the real struggle begins because you can't connect, you can't make sense of the boy you knew who was only 21 and had everything in front of him and was, he and his father, I used to tease them and say, are you two gonna like start making out on the couch? Cause they were so close. And you know, this wonderful, amazing kid would in this moment of insanity because he was so absolutely drunk out of his mind, his blood alcohol was 2-2. And I learned from reading his phone, because I'm the only one who did, the cops gave it to me, was that he was angry. And in that moment, he made a decision that you couldn't take back. And so um, watching him go off life support was horrible. It didn't go well. And knowing that this being Neil's only child, my stepson, but... um, considered my son that was it and so finding a purpose and particularly for Neil's horror and finding him the right treatment and the right therapy and him being a public figure and knowing that that would be in the public domain made it even more tricky to manage the grief which is like no other grief because my mother died three weeks later and I can honestly say that they are two wildly different sets of grief wildly That makes complete sense. It is really amazing that in this very, what I would consider very short period of time between Victor's death in September of 2018 
and now you guys are able to even get on a podcast like this and talk in a real way to people. What would you like people to know about suicide? You want to take that, Neil, first? Well, uh, yes, I, I will. And it's a very good question, because if if I had not been through this and two, three years ago, you'd ask me, do you think you could be in this place if this happened? I would have told you, you'll never get me on a podcast because I'll be dead if that ever happens to me. So being alive and well and I think prosperous and somewhat happy is, is amazing to me too in looking back at it. But what I have found is that my purpose now in my recovery from grief, if you want to call it that, is to help others that are going through it or that could go through it if I don't reach out and that they could perhaps stop it before it happens or at the very least I can help them manage a path in the, in the uh, aftermath of it. The thing that I'd, I'd like people to know is that this is not a, this is not something that discriminates or that's something that only hits one segment of the population. This doesn't have any economic boundary. It has no status boundary. It has no uh, boundary of any kind whatsoever. Sexual background, uh, sexual boundary, meaning male, female, old, young, but particularly for young, it is disturbing because it has become an option to them. I think when I speak about this, I think that I would like people to know that even though I've had a blessed life and had a blessed career and had a lot of nice, good things happen for me, I'm also a person that's had probably the worst possible thing you could possibly have happened to you in losing him. I lost my entire world, and that's that is the truth. Is and, and no mm -hmm. disrespect to my relationship with Margaret. It, it's that he was my world from the moment he was born, mm -hmm. and I realized too that when I was in that bathtub with him, there came a point within that very seems like a short period of time that I said to myself, "Oh my God, I can't do anything about this." I can't control this. I've always helped him get through everything. I've helped him, you know, every problem, everything that came up from the time he was, you know, right out of the womb. I mean, I, you know, all the things you do with the diapers and you go to the next stage and I showered him and I bathed him and I've bought him cars and I've done everything from soup to nuts. I've helped him pick classes for school. I've done all these things, but there will be nothing I can do about this. This is not something I can fix. And it's at that moment that you know that you don't have control over other human beings. Because if I didn't have control over this, who was my son, my best friend, the love of my life, the most important thing, he was my mini-me, he was, you can, I could go on and on. If I have no control over him, I don't have any control over anything in, the, in life except myself. And that's something that has to be understood by parents because you don't have control. You don't have control over your spouse. You don't have control over your children. You hope that you can guide them in the right directions, but ultimately you don't have control. And I've told other parents that this is an impulsive act. 85% of the time, it's not planned. It's something that's done like his was, and that you have to talk to your children about this. One of the things that's really hard of being a parent is 
having the ugly conversations that you really don't want to have. Most of us think, well, there'll come a time when you'll have to talk to them about sex. You'll have to talk about pregnancy. You'll have to talk about STDs. You'll have to talk to them about many different things that are ugly to talk about. And, 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 but you got to do it. That's what you signed up for when you decided to have a child. And the other thing you got to talk about, unfortunately, is self-harm because self-harm is within this up and up and coming generation. It wasn't part of the baby boomers mentality or psyche, but I can tell you for sure, and the stats back me up, that it is part of these generations' psyche. It is an option that was never an option before. Why? Well, that takes a lot of research to figure that out, but it is preventable, but you have to talk about it. You have to have that ugly conversation. Yeah, I would I would second that just to say that I think the influence of social media from the research that I've done and just from the people that we've met in our support group that we go to through Mental Health America called Survivors of Suicide, that it's part of their nomenclature. And so social media means that boys particularly who seem to have no shock absorbers anymore where when we grew up, if you were mad about something, you might go beat the other kid up or or just smash your mother's car up, I suppose. Now it's like, well, that's it. It's too hard. It's over. And it's not something that you can reconcile. So as Neil said, talking about it, knowing what they do on social media, as tough as it is to even ask that question, although it shouldn't be, is really critical because you're not going to get transparency, but you can get some, some measure of vision through the spectrum of what is going on in their lives. And then, God forbid, if it does happen, then you have to begin the process of forgiving yourself and getting through the whys and the guilts and the this and the that. And that's a journey in and of itself. Thank you both. I I think you partially answered this question, but I want to make sure you get all your points on this because I do think it's an interesting discussion about, you know, where we've been and where we've come to as a society. You know, Neil and Margaret, is there anything you can name that you think is another reason why we're seeing such alarming rates of anxiety statistics rising, but also prevalence of suicide amongst young people? Margaret, I'll take that on first, if you don't mind. I've Because I've obviously put a lot of thought and research and conversation into this. And I, I, I don't like to be too long-winded, but these aren't answers that can be short-winded, if you know what I mean. They're, 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 these answers have to be thoughtful, and therefore they take up some, some space. But I asked in a, one of our SOS meetings, and I will ask both Arden and Diana to think about this for a minute. Do you remember when your parents first let you call your friends on the phone and ask them if they wanted to come out to play? You were probably you know, maybe in your late single digits or maybe in 10 or early double digits, right? When it was so exciting to be able to use the telephone. Absolutely. I'm sure you remember. Yeah. Well, so let's try to imagine, because all four of us are like, are the same, but let's try to imagine ourselves now, we'll go back to eight years old and say you were handed a little device that was put in your hand and that device you could call all your friends whenever you wanted to. You could look up things on that too if you had questions about anything. And if you're, you weren't supposed to be talking, you could actually text your friends 
through words and talk to your friends through words. And then you had on that device too, uh, as you got a little bit older, you know, in early teens, late, like 12 and up, you started to get on social platforms where you could have a whole bunch of friends and compare everything that's going on in life and, and look into other people's lives and see what their lives were like and find out that their lives are perfect while yours isn't. And then find out that somebody else is smiling in front of a BMW that they don't even own, but because they, they wanted to make you think that they own a BMW and because you don't even have a car, you're a loser. And then you go on and on. And this device sticks with you from the time you're a kid. So all the judgments you make about yourself come through that device. All the communication comes through that device. All the uh, arguments that you have, instead of doing it face-to-face out in the street like we used to do, you do it through that device. You do everything through that device. You even break up with your girlfriend through that device when you get older. This is how, you know, this is what this addiction is like to these devices. And they have found statistically that since 2015, when smartphones became, smartphones became something that all of society had, that they started, it became, there were no more flip phones, no more just talking phones. These, everybody had a smartphone. That suicide has skyrocketed since then. So I think it's common sense to know that there is some tie-in between this device that children get and how their mind and thought process works in conjunction with everything being instantaneous and I have to be liked. I have to get my likes in. If I send out my picture, how many likes will I get? Well, that's not the real world. But that that world, I think, has suicide as an option. The real world doesn't or shouldn't anyway. That's my side of it, Margaret. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, Arden, you know, and Diana, you know from the work that, that OPG does that this isolation, take COVID out of the picture, but the isolation that kids have and when they're too much inside their own head and particularly for young boys whose brains are not fully developed until they're 26 or so, that how they judge themselves and how their peers judge them has such a profound impact. One of the things I learned and I like to share with people when I read Victor's phone, I was absolutely devastated. Not because there was anything on there about self-harm or suicide. There was nothing. But what I saw was a generation of kids, kids you would see, wave to you, hi, hi, nice kids, nice families, who spoke to each other with such a level of disrespect and who did not respect them, did not even have self-respect, that the stuff that they would do and say to compromise themselves, to make themselves appear important or wanted or loved. I remember handing the phone to the police saying, this is not, this is not our son. And he goes, don't worry about it. That's how they all are. I'm like, not not ours. And in my mind, I'm going, you're wrong. And I think the hard part is that there's this delicate balancing act that parents have to do, even, even if it's not a child, even if it's a spouse. If you sense that something is off, you know, go over the boundary and and say something. I have plenty of friends who have kids who are in their 20s and they're like, well, we're not really sure we should say something. Say something. Talk to them. Because where they're going to go for insight and help is not where you want them to go. You And we would, we can laugh about it now, but 
we would have battles with Victor all the time about his phone and he would try every stunt under the sun, you know, hide it under a shirt and sneak upstairs and, you know, we'd get the bill and we'd see it and, you know, we'd go back and forth. But he respected the boundaries. He knew and he would never have done anything. At the very least, he would have never done anything to hurt Neil. So we knew it was impulsive. It was planned within 15 minutes based on what I saw. And it's better for you to butt in and have that conversation and risk your kid or your spouse or your loved one being ticked off at you than not having it and thinking maybe I should have. In a follow-up question to that, Margaret, mm-hmm. how often do you say something? Do you understand? Uh, you know what? what? It's a balance. Yeah. It's not being a helicopter, but I think that particularly, I mean, Neil, chime in on this one. You know, we knew with Victor, Victor was very needy when it came to women. And we could tell when he turned 21, he was impulsive. We could see the weight gain. We talked to him about his drinking. He did have a therapist. You know, people, you can't sit there and say, well, at our age, we didn't do those things. We didn't have therapists. Well, that doesn't matter anymore. It's a different ball game. It's a different set of stimulants around them. And we were, we were pretty much a pain in the neck. We were a pain in the neck to him, not overbearing so, but if your gut says that something's not right, you know, even that night, Neil knew something didn't add up. There were other things in that story that Victor came down in his underwear. He never came down in his underwear. He went upstairs. Like, you have the right to just say, hey, you know what? Be ticked at me if you want to, but something doesn't seem right. Because oftentimes, what they really want is for someone to say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Yes, but in that, in, and the only thing is in the, in the story that we have just told, he was so drunk from right. drinking on his own downstairs that the only thing you could possibly imagine was that you had to keep him at home. And you, there was no talking to him when he was like that. But I think your point is well taken that if you see something off in your family member, you, you sense something is off. You've got to say something. You've got to talk about it. You can't wait till they're drunk out of their mind <laughs> to, to do that. You've got to do that before that. And I never thought this was possible, what happened here. I mean, who would think it? I didn't even realize that there was a gun upstairs. Right, right. So, And that's part of where we live and being in a gun culture. He knew, Neil's Canadian, so they don't even know how to spell the word gun. And, and I'm up from up north and never, I've never even held a gun. So, but this was like, you know, the bravado of down here. And we were like, no way, pal, like that, that's out of here. Not a chance, you know, and transparency is key and you can't worry about them getting annoyed. You know, I would tease him. I'd say, your room is a pigsty. I'm going to clean it if you don't. And he's like, go ahead. And I remember going through there and he didn't have anything to hide. He wasn't tidy, so it wasn't like he was hiding stuff. But I think you just have to be, you have to trust your instinct and err on the side of extreme caution because especially during this tender age group of, you know, 13, we've seen people as young as 13 into their 30s where they're particularly for men. And then there are some cases I think the audience should know, God forbid any of them have gone through this, that you know, when they're in that space of contemplating taking their life, it is a space about as wide as tissue paper. And there are 500 foot walls of steel around it. And unless you have the good fortune or God happens to tap you on the shoulder and say, step in at this exact moment, you can't 
permeate those walls. And so sometimes people do it impulsively, leave no note, don't have any signs of it. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. And for those people, my heart breaks because it's bad enough to deal with it, but to not know why. And sometimes it is purely 100% an impulsive act that has no explanation. And that I think is the, the deadliest of suicide. What surprises you both around the conversation about suicide? You want to take that, Neil? Yeah. Well, what has nothing surprises me anymore. But what surprised me in the beginning is that, first of all, anyone that this happens to, their first thought is, why me? Why me? Why me? And you say, well, it isn't really about you. That's what I said to myself. It isn't really about you. It's about someone else who you have no control over. But what's really surprising is when you get out into the world and broach this topic, it is, as I said earlier, it runs the gamut of all different parts of society. I mean, it, it runs from a lot of kids, yes, because it's, again, I'm saying it's an option, but I mean, there are nurses, there are husbands, there are wives, brothers, sisters, everything. And that's what has really surprised me. And that I've heard of them as young as 13 and as old as in their 60s. So this is something that goes right across the board. And I, I think that that's the thing that surprised me the most, Margaret, is that it is something that is out there a lot more than we thought it was out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's indiscriminate for sure. I think I think one of the takeaways is, and to Neil's point, I remember when this happened, I remember saying to him, nobody's coming. Nobody's, nobody's there for us. I mean, our immediate family was, and, you know, some very good friends, but like people that you would have thought locally or, or whatever, like, it's a very lonely experience. There's a lot of judgment around it, the stigma around it. And people say, oh, it's so selfish. And it's like, yeah, it is selfish. It's the ultimate selfish act. But people aren't, what we've learned is people aren't thinking about you when they're doing it. That's probably not the case. And I think it's a very lonely, lonely, lonely journey because, you know, people don't know what to say. It's very awkward. Neil would purposely not answer his phone when people called when he saw who it was because he didn't want them to feel uncomfortable when they got on the phone and didn't know what to say. And the only thing you can say to someone is, I'm sorry, because we don't even know what to say. We, we to this day, we sit around and go, why, 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 why? It's never ending. It's a really, I really appreciate that point, Margaret, because I think as somebody who sits here listening, my heart just wants to, you know, hug you both. And what do you say? And the simple I'm sorry mm -hmm. is as good as it's going to have to get, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what I've, what I've tried to help others with, Arden, is, and this is something that I should mention, because before this happened to us, I remember it happening to someone else in the hockey community that I didn't know, but he was a player and had a daughter and this happened. And my thoughts that I had about that were things like, gee, poor parents, they must feel, you know, must have had a lot of issues with the girl, they must have had to have them in and out of therapy, they must have had this, they must have had that, just 
Those are my thoughts. Never discussed, just my thoughts. Well, when this happened, I called him and we introduced ourselves to each other, although we knew each other through the hockey industry. And he told me that, no, we never had therapy for her. She was on our hockey, she was on her school hockey team and she just got back all A's on her report card and everything was going along great. And my wife came home and found her hanging in the basement. So all the things that you imagine about this aren't really there. And what I've found about saying sorry to people is that what, now what I do is when I see someone who's going to be in grief, I rush in. Like the firemen that rush into the burning building while everybody else is trying to run out, I rush in. And I want to tell that person, I'm here for you. You have my support. There are no words that I can say to you that can be of any use right now. But I do want you to know I'm here to support you and I'll stick by you. And those words mean more than anything you could ever say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know that some of the folks listening to this might be not necessarily the family members who've experienced this loss, but somebody working with them, a professional advisor, a doctor. And I think what's interesting is people often struggle with the right thing to say. I guess my question, Neil, was do you think that's an important thing to say for anybody to say if they're supporting someone who they're not related to, but know that they've gone through this experience? I think what's the most important is that you call. And really what you say is secondary, but have the guts to call. Don't chicken out and say, I don't know what to say. I, will they be mad if I call? Do they want their privacy? Do they want all these excuses that we use for not calling during a painful time? Get on the phone and call. And I have told people very bluntly, get on the phone and call now. And if it were me, I would just give them my support. But you, they need to hear your voice either directly into their ear, or they need to hear it on voicemail. They need to hear your support. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to mention that I think is really important to your audience, particularly when you're dealing with wealth advisors and other people, is that Neil is a bit of an anomaly in this in this lovely club that we belong to. Men have a very hard time being vulnerable. And so we've been going to a group for the past two plus years now every other week and it's pretty tough and and he is usually the only man in there and 15 20 women and there's either one when it wasn't COVID, it was one to three new families coming in every new week and since that time he really has been a huge advocate and a huge supporter of new people coming in partly because of his experience but always encouraging them to say bring your spouse bring your brother, bring whomever, because it is such a hard, it, it's hard, not even the right word. It, it's the most unbelievable stressor on a relationship. We have gone through it very, very well. We've been closer than ever. We work together on it. And I, you know, the totality of both deaths at the same time kind of cemented that. But for most families, the men do not want to be vulnerable. And that's a huge impediment to the healing process, particularly if you have other children or particularly if the family structure is dependent upon you because making yourself vulnerable to those emotions, whether it's you know sitting in a group or sitting someplace and just bawling your eyes out or screaming or yelling or whatever, 
is so critical to the healing process and the power of the group. You hear people say it about AA. Neil and I will say it about this group. The power of the group cannot be overstated because it's what saved us. Our our ability to talk. We have certain. We both have therapists. We have rules about whether if I want to talk about Victor, I'll bring it up to Neil if he's able to talk about it. We have certain boundaries around certain things. We just, we don't have pictures of Victor in the house. It's just too painful to look at. Baby pictures maybe, but and you have to respect each other and recognize that how each person grieves is going to be wildly, wildly different. I can't fathom what Neil experienced in that bathroom that night. He can't fathom what I experienced listening to it. We both were in the hospital together. And so learning to grieve in community is a tremendous benefit. And we always encourage men, get help, talk to other men be vulnerable. It's going to save you. It will save you. What would you want in closing this podcast? For people, we usually close it with what's a bit to consider. And today I want to alter that just a moment and ask you as a final question, what would you tell somebody who is contemplating suicide? Margaret, you go ahead and I'll finish up. Okay. I would tell them that that moment that you're feeling that tremendous pain will pass, that there are people around you you don't realize who love and support you, that asking for help is not weakness, that there is more to life than that moment, that it is a permanent solution to a very temporary, momentary problem, and that it it is just, it is the most painful thing you could ever do to the people you love you. Selfishly, I say that in hindsight, but I would say that you have no clue that there is help for for you and that people that you don't even realize are there to help you, love you, support you, and that this moment will pass. You can get through it. It's not the end. And I would add to that, that having talked to a couple of people who have actually contemplated suicide in their life, that they thought that they were doing the rest of us a favor by leaving because they hated themselves and were loathing themselves so much that taking themselves out of the picture wasn't going to hurt anybody. It was just going to be, you know, in the end, it'd be better for everybody else. And I would say to them, all you are doing when you do this act is taking all that pain that you have within you and putting it right into all the people that love you. And you are just giving them the pain that they've never felt before. So if that's what you want to do, is inflict your loved ones with pain, I guess that's what you're going to do because it's going to be way worse than the pain you're feeling right now is the pain that they're going to feel if you go forward with this permanent solution to a temporary problem. Thank you both for being on this episode and for speaking from the heart and sharing such vulnerability with your story. To all our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. And we'll hope you'll tune in on our next episode. Margaret, Neil, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. 
Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.